Al-Bayan Radio presents the following lesson from Masjid Al-Azhar, Bilmo. Presented by Sheikh Jalal al-Shami. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama tasliman kathira. So inshallah, we continue with the common mistakes widespread among the Muslims, especially mistakes regarding the salah. Uh, I believe we're up to point 31. Not giving concern to the recitation of Al-Fatiha and reciting it with errors. An example of this is reciting the word Alameen with a Kasra vowel on the lamb. So instead of saying Alameen, they say Alameen. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Incorrect. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. So some people, يعني, they don't careful they're not careful in reciting surah al-fatiha correctly and they will mix up the vowels or placing a fatha vowel on the uh, on the hamza letter uh, in the word ihdina so they say ahdina or placing a dhamma vowel on the ta word uh, on the ta in the word an'amta so they say an'amtu. So they say surat al-ladhina an'amtu alayhim. That's incorrect. An'amta. Because an'amta means that you, who you blessed. An'amtu means who I blessed. So see sometimes this chaining of the vowels, fatha, kasra, dhamma, it will change the entire meaning of, uh, of, the, uh, of the word of the surah. Now sometimes a person might say, Wallah, and no, he learned it like that. And he was a child or something. Maybe that it makes a mistake. But a Muslim should not just, Wallah, how he learned it when he was small, just stay like that for the rest of his life. 50, 60 years old, reads it the same way he reads it when he was five years old. No. He should make sure that he learns to read correctly and goes to an, to an expert, one who is has uh, يعني, uh, knowledge of correct recitation of the Qur'an to correct his recitation, especially of Surah Al-Fatiha. And why do we specify Surah Al-Fatiha? Because it is the pillar of the Salah. As the Prophet ﷺ, he said in the Hadith, مَنْ لَمْ يَقْرَأْ بِأُمُّ الْقُرْآنِ فَصَلَاتُهُ خِدَاجِ Whoever doesn't read the, uh, the, the mother of the book, the essential Surah of the book, which is Surah Al-Fatiha, then his prayer is deficient. Then his prayer is deficient. So we have to make sure that we're reciting Surah Al-Fatiha correctly. So not concerned, doesn't matter, Yallah, doesn't matter how you read it, Fatiha Kasra Dhamma, not pronouncing the letters correctly. Some brothers, they say, ah, oh, but I come from a non-Arabic background. I, I'm not an Arabic, nat- native Arabic speaker. That's not an excuse. That's not an excuse. We have to, this is something important for our Deen to recite, especially Surah Al-Fatiha, with the with the correct pronunciation, the correct harakat, okay, uh, and it's not a condition. And I I have يعني, seen and experienced people who are Arabs who don't recite Arab Arabic speaking, يعني, and they don't recite Surah Al-Fatiha correctly. So it's not an issue of being an Arab or non-Arab. And there are some. Non-Arabs who recite the Qur'an, mashallah, beautifully. If you didn't see the person, you wouldn't know who's reading, whether they are an Arab or non-Arab. And this is how we should be. 
Arabic, you don't say, well, I'm not an Arab, this is not my language. No. Arabic is the language of every Muslim. Of every Muslim. And as I said, we, it just requires some effort to correctly pronounce يعني, and correctly uh, uh, يعني, uh, pronounce and recite Surah Al-Fatiha at least. The Quran generally as well is, is important. But especially at the very least, Surah Al-Fatiha. And as well, more generally, to learn the Arabic language. Someone says, but uh, English, uh, Arabic isn't my native language. How do you expect from me to learn Arabic? I say, is English your native language? Most of us, English is not our native language. Whether we come from Arab countries or African countries or Asian countries or subcontinent countries or whatever, Turkish or whatever, we all come to Australia and we learn English, correct? So why we can learn English, we can't learn Arabic? We learn Arabic for the sake of our deen and especially going back to the correct recitation and pronunciation of Surah Al-Fatiha. And how are you going to know that you're reading it properly? By reading it to one who is qualified. One who is qualified. Someone who knows the Quran recitation well to correct. And it might take time. One of the strictest teachers I ever read and I practiced my Surah Al-Fatiha on was Sheikh Bashir from Medina. And he's originally from the subcontinent background. But very strict in reciting correctly. And especially Surah Al-Fatiha. Most of the sheikhs in Sydney when he came didn't get the pass from him. Because he was so strict that wallahi the sheikhs were sweating reading in front of him. Hafizahullah. So mistakes, these mistakes and similar mistakes, they must be avoided. And the person who makes mistakes like this cannot lead others in prayer. So let's say, for example, you know yourself, you do not recite Surah Al-Fatiha correct. People have pointed it out and said, brother, you have mistakes. So you're still learning. Or you haven't got around to learn. So if, for example, you come in a gathering, you come to the masjid, there's no imam. And they say, brother, you lead the prayer. And you, don't, you know that you don't recite Surah Al-Fatiha correctly. You're not allowed to put yourself forward. You say, brother, I, 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 don't, I have mistakes in my Fatiha. Let someone else pray. Now your own prayer, of course, you have to pray with whatever ability you have. But if you know that you don't recite pro- properly, then you let someone else who, who recites better than you. If there's no one else and you all recite the same, then the one who recites the best. Okay? Uh, now... If he makes it, but let's say for example, there are some people, mashallah, they've memorized the entire Quran but without correct pronunciation. Maybe someone who's memorized only just Amma, but with correct pronunciation, that person has precedence in leading the Salah. Because the Salah has to have correct pronunciation. Alright? And the Quran has to have, so if you don't, if you have mistakes, it's never too late to learn. So if he makes a mistake that alters the meaning of the verse, such as placing a dhamma on the letter ta of an'amta, so an'am sirata alladheena an'amta alayhim, remember we said if someone reads it incorrectly, it says sirata alladheena an'amtu alayhim, then this changes the meaning. The path of those that you showed your favor, an'amta alayhim. If you say sirata alladheena an'amtu alayhim, that I showed favor to them. Do you show favor? Do you guide people to the straight path? No. Allah is the one who guides. So this is an incorrect meaning. So if someone recites the Qur'an 
with incorrect meaning, then his prayer is invalid. His prayer is invalid because this corrupts the Surah Al-Fatiha. And if the Surah Al-Fatiha is not recited correctly, the whole Salah is invalid. So we have to be very careful. The next point the Sheikh mentions is cracking the knuckles. You have some people that when they pray, they start to fidget. One of the things that they start fidgeting in is cracking their knuckles. Knuckles of their, of their fingers, knuckles of their toes, their neck, everything. They start, mashallah, start open a chiropractor session during the salah. Before the salah, no problem. After the salah, no problem. During the salah, every bone in their body needs to be cracked now. They call the chiropractor the one that... The Sheikh he said that this is hated, this is makruh to do that. It is hated to crack the to cracking the knuckles is makruh and prohibited during the salah. It's haram to do. Now everyone wants to crack the knuckles. Take it easy. Alright? It's haram to do that in the salah. As for cracking the knuckles, it has been narrated that Shu'bah, the free slave of Ibn Abbas, said, Sallaytu ila Jambi ibn Abbasin. Uh, he said to him, so this Shu'bah who was the freed slave of Abdullah ibn Abbas was praying next to Abdullah ibn Abbas and he started to crack his knuckles in the salah. So this habit is not a new one. Subhanallah, shaitan whispers to people, always, you know, as the Arabs say, shaitan mamat, always shaitan is there. All of a sudden they get the urge to crack the knuckles in the salah. So Abdullah bin Abbas said to Shu'bah after the salah, he said, La ummalak, you have no mother. It's like, يعني, that is an expression the Arabs use, like that's a disaster. Like how sad would you be if you lost your mother? It's like, you know, you've done a big disaster. You should be so aggrieved as if you've lost your mother. La ummalak, you have no mother. You crack your knuckles while, you're, while you are praying? And you're standing in front of Allah. Don't you have respect? Don't you have awe in front of what you're doing? In front of Allah? In, don't you respect what you are doing? Right? So it's very important that we have focus and respect and awe in our salah. The next is interlocking the fingers during the salah. Interlocking the fingers. This is as well makruh. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi said, said, when one of you performs wudu and does it well, you make your wudu well, and then he goes out intending the masjid, he goes out directing, yani intentionally his his intent and his goal is to reach the masjid. So as he's walking, you shouldn't interlace your fingers as you're walking to the masjid. Why? For he's in a state of prayer. While you're walking to the masjid, it's as if you're in salah. So if you're walking to the masjid, you're not allowed to interlace your fingers because you're in salah. How about if you're literally in salah? You're not allowed. Okay? Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu said, The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, He said, When one of you performs wudu in his home and then he goes to the masjid, he is in prayer until he returns. Thus, let him not do like this. And he interlocked his fingers. So interlocking your fingers is not allowed while you're walking to the masjid, while you're praying, and while you're walking away. From the masjid. Some people say, why? Because what's this generally a sign of? If I'm sitting like this, what's it a sign of? 
sort of a sign of boredom, right? Okay. So when you're coming to the message, it's not an honorable way to look. Okay. So you don't interlock your fingers as you are coming to the masjid or in your salah, you know, twiddling your thumbs or whatever, locking your fingers, interlocking your fingers on your way. So you should come with the utmost respect. طيب. Point number 37. Putting someone forward to lead the prayer, he was not qualified while more qualified people are present. Okay. Now someone might find this strange. If you have people who are more qualified, why would you put someone who is less qualified? We think, oh, that wouldn't never happen. Yes, but it happens. Why? Because maybe this guy is a famous guy. Maybe this guy, he's a, mashallah, president or a leader, but he doesn't know much Quran. But just you want to show good face with him. Maybe, for example, he has a beautiful angelic voice, but there he doesn't read well or he hasn't memorized as much or he doesn't have as much understanding and depth of knowledge as others. But just because he attracts crowds and he makes people, ah, oh, yeah, he makes their hearts fly. And we said this before the Quran is not meant to be as a musical enjoyment for its melody. Yes, the Quran is nice and it has a nice melody and it has a nice sound. But that's not the number one thing. Some people, the sheikh is reading, mashallah, beautiful melody, beautiful sound, and they're Allah, and he's reading about Jahannam. They're not listening to the words. They're just, the, the pitch and the sound and the melody is what gets them. You have someone, even there's a joke, they say that, for example, people don't focus on the words, whether they're Arabs or non-Arabs. You have some people that go to uh, read in public gatherings, beautiful voice, but the people aren't concentrating on the words. They're concentrating only on the sound and the melody. And you see these Qadat reading, making his voice up and down and, and, and beautiful tune and not worrying about what the, the meaning of the words are. You know? Especially if someone's not concentrating or doesn't know what the words mean, he's just enjoying the sound. And even if he reads something other than Quran, he's just saying Arabic words but nice melody, people say, Allah! They're, you know, this is not what the Quran is for. The Quran is for hearing the words and understanding the words. To understand the verses of Allah. That's the purpose of the Quran. The melody and so on helps, but it's not the number one thing. So we shouldn't put an imam just because he's got a beautiful voice. We look at the one who has the best recitation and reads correctly. As well, have a nice voice, it's important, but not, we don't, this is not our priority over others. For example, Rasulullah when he was on his deathbed, he told the Sahaba, Muru Aba Bakrin bin-nas. Go and tell Abu Bakr to lead the people in prayer. So Aisha radiallahu anha, that's her father. Yani, if your father was the Imam of the Muslims, she'd be very proud. But Aisha radiallahu anha, she said, yani she, she said, can't you find anyone other than Abu Bakr? Abu Bakr rajulun bakka. He cries a lot and he starts to get emotional. And you know, his voice doesn't come out in the salah. 
He said, Muru Aba Bakrin Falyusali bin Nas. Tell Abu Bakr, go and tell Abu Bakr to lead the people in the salah. It's not about, wallah, he's gonna, his, the recitation is going to get disrupted because he's going to get emotional and his voice is going to cut out and he's going to cry and so on. No. What's important is the person who's reading has the best knowledge of the Qur'an, reads the Qur'an correctly, has deep knowledge, reads the Qur'an from meaning. Yes, we should also try to beautify our voices, but it's not the number one priority. So, because... Putting someone less qualified while there are other people more qualified, this opposes the purpose of the Imam. As he is an example, and thus the Imam must be one of understanding who is able to recite. Okay? Because imagine you bring someone to lead the Salah, to be the Imam. He has got a beautiful voice, but he's not an upright person. He's a person who outside of the Salah, in his normal life, is a bit of a shady character. Then people, what are they going to say? Look, this is your imam. He's doing this and that. And this has happened. Oh, he's an imam and he's doing this and he's doing that, doing shady things. This is not correct. The imam is someone who is a leader who reflects the community, should be someone who is the best person in the community, not someone who will bring shame to the community. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he said, "Ya ummul qawm, ya ummul qawm, aqra'uhum li kitabillah." Put forth those best versed in the recitation of the book of Allah to lead the prayer. The one who reads the Quran the best. Some of the scholars interpreted that mean aqra'uhum, yani a'lamuhum. The one who has the most knowledge of the tafsir and the fiqh and the deep meaning of the Quran, because when you read the Quran with meaning, it comes out different. It's not about the voice about and the understanding when it comes from the heart this is what's important the scholars have affirmed that the person who does not recite well should not be put forward to lead the prayer nor the person with obvious sin upon him someone who has a reputation to be a little bit shady in his character sinful even should not be put someone to lead the salah all right once there was an imam who used to lead the salah. And we are all sinned. We are all sinners, correct? But there's a difference between a person who sins and privately and he seeks Allah's forgiveness and someone who's careless of his sin and his sin becomes public knowledge. This is different. So once there was an imam who, yani, uh, he used to lead the people and then there was a certain issue and it became revealed because of that issue that the reason why he got into this problem because he took riba from the bank imagine the imam took riba from the bank for something maybe someone you know, if it's darura uh, or it's desperation it's life or death something no but it was something that was not worthy And then when it became public knowledge, he said, Khalas, then get rid of it. Get rid of the riba. He said, no. He said, then you can't lead the salah. How can you read the verses of riba that it's harb ma'allahi wa rasuli and you're taking riba yourself? Get rid of the riba and then maybe we can look into having you the imam again. And then he 
never was the imam again. Yani, someone who has open sin or known sin, how can someone, he does sin and he yani, uh, leads the salah. So it can't be someone who has obvious sin upon him or a person with a bad history. This person has a reputation that he does yani, immoral things or bad things or is untrustworthy or so on. He shouldn't be placed as the imam. Or an innovator, someone who does innovations, bid'ah or a sinner and the like. They are not to be put forward. But if they are put forward to lead the prayer, the prayer of those praying behind them is correct and Allah knows best. Okay. So another point, another mistake that we find in the salah is grammatical mistakes in the recitation of the Noble Qur'an. So again, going back to reciting the Qur'an correctly. So if someone reads the Qur'an with grammatical mistakes, this is an obvious deficiency. It is the right of the Qur'an that it be recited free from grammatical errors. Thus the Muslim strives with himself to recite with tajweed and good recitation. Allah Ta'ala, he says, And recite the Qur'an aloud in a slow, pleasant tone and style. The Qur'an should be recited with tartil, with slow, beautiful recitation. Yani with tajweed. Making the Qur'an read well. And Allah Ta'ala says, فَإِذَا قَرَأْنَاهُ فَاتَّبِعْ قُرْآنَهُ And when we have recited it to you, then follow you its recital. Right? So the Qur'an what was, re- was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ, recited in a certain way. We cannot read the Qur'an how we like to read it. The Qur'an must be read with the tajweed that was Yani narrated from how the Prophet ﷺ read the Qur'an. Right? Allah says, فَاتَّبِعَ قُرْآنَ So follow its recitation. So it's recited to Jibreel, recited it to the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ recited it back to Jibreel in the same way he heard it. Then Rasulullah ﷺ recited the Qur'an to the Sahaba and they recited it back to the Prophet ﷺ. And likewise, from the time of the Prophet to the Sahaba and generation to generation until now. So that's why we have this chain, which is called the ijazah, which is called like a license that gives you authority that from a qualified Qur'an teacher, that he learned that recitation from his teacher and he teaches it to you. And if we follow that pattern from his teacher, from his teacher, from his teacher, back to who? Back to the Prophet ﷺ, how it was recited from Jibreel ﷺ, how he heard it from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is how the Qur'an was recited and so we have to recite the Qur'an because you have some people that add their own style and they go and they change the rules of tajweed and read it in a different way just because it sounds better to them. This is not allowed. It has to, the Qur'an has to be recited according to the correct uh, rules of tajweed as it was revealed. The, the rules of tajweed were not created and just invented. They were narrated from Teacher to teacher to the Prophet ﷺ. The meaning of that is to recite it with proper vowelization. It deserves. So the correct vowels, long vowels, short vowels, fatha, kasra, dhamma, so on. Short vowels, long vowels, the correct mudud, pronouncing the letters clearly without grammatical errors. There is a reward for the person who does this with a sincere intention. Aisha radiallahu anha said, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Al-mahiru bil-Qur'ani ma'as-safarati al-kirami al-barara 
والذي يقرأ القرآن ويتعتع فيه وهو عليه شاق له أجران The one who is skilled in reciting Quran will be with the noble, obedient scribes. And the one who reads the Quran perfectly is on the level of the angels. Allahu Akbar. Well, if that's not an encouragement to learn the Quran perfectly, to be on the level of the angels. Like us, we are struggling. Trying to say the words and struggling. The one who reads the Quran and struggles with it and it's difficult and it's difficult for him will have two rewards. So to get to that stage of being an excellent reciter takes a lot of work. But as you are struggling and getting there, you're getting double the reward. So this is an encouragement to learn. An encouragement as well to be an excellent reciter of the Qur'an. So that as well, that way the Qur'an lives. Because the, the one who's skilled now teaches others. And they will teach others, and they will teach others. And that way the Qur'an, you know, if we don't learn, then we can't teach anyone. Okay? Number 39, some men praying behind the women in Masjid al-Haram. So you know in Mecca, Mecca, Masjid al-Haram in Mecca, it's a little bit يعني, chaotic. Because every masjid in the world has one direction, correct or not? Every masjid in the world has one direction. Whether it's... Uh, this masjid here in Sydney, every masjid around the world, even Masjid al-Nabawi in Medina, every masjid has one direction, except Masjid al-Haram. Even the masajid in, uh, it, around Mecca have one direction. But Masjid al-Haram has every direction. You have people praying in every direction, and you have people making tawaf around the Kaaba, and then they stop and pray wherever they find. So you'll find you have a problem in Masjid al-Haram that you don't find, really in any other masjid, is that sometimes men will find themselves praying behind women. So a Muslim should try to the best of his ability to not pray behind the women, to move in a other place or to encourage the women to go to the back and for the men to go to the front to the best of their ability. So this includes men praying behind women in other places as well. But this is most common to happen in Masjid al-Haram. And this is makruh, it's disliked. And it's one of the hated things in the prayer because uh, it is the sunnah for the women to pray behind the men. When men pray behind women, it removes focus and devotion from their prayers and it distracts from their prayer due to them looking at the women. Men should never line up to pray behind women except when it is unavoidable. Sometimes it's so crowded, there's no other... يعني, you try to move everywhere you go, there's women or whatever. You, or, or for example, the salah is about to begin and you try your best. Sometimes it's unavoidable. Inshallah, a person should fear Allah as much as they can and lower their gaze or not look at the women who are praying in front of him and bowing and prostrating and so on. Okay, so for example, those sometimes praying behind the women is unavoidable. Like those who end up praying behind women because they missed the Eid or Jumu'ah prayers. Some of the scholars have stated that the exception 
uh, that the exception for this is when praying in Masjid al-Haram, and this was stated by Sheikh Abdul Aziz ibn Baz, rahimahullahu ta'ala. Okay, point number 40, women, women coming to the Masjid beautified and perfumed. Okay? So everyone should come to the Masjid in their best form, but women shouldn't come to public places, right? Beautified and perfumed, and especially to the Masjid. Especially to the masjid. Because the masjid is not a place to attract the attention. The masjid should be a place of dignity. Should be a place of integrity. Shouldn't be a place where you're trying, the women are trying to attract the attention of the men or the men are trying to attract the attention of the women. Okay? So especially the women have a responsibility not to come perfumed and beautified to the masjid. They can come to the masjid, but they take precaution to be very modest in their dress and not perfume so that men smell their perfume as they walk past them and they get a whiff and then they follow where that smell is coming from right right so it doesn't mean that they're stinky women and men muslim women and men should never be stinky always be clean bathe have fresh clothes sometimes yani, the smell of the food gets in our clothes and so on when we come to the masjid always try to have fresh clothes Right, uh, have yani, bathe, put like uh, deodorant and so on. This is for women and men, so that the body odor or any foul smell from the body or from the food or whatever does not not smelt. But even for the women, doesn't mean that they should smell fresh. But it doesn't mean that they smell perfumed. Okay, so if they walk, there's no smell, no good smell, and as well no bad smell. <laughs> Some of our sisters, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless them. They're working hard. Wallah, may Allah reward them. In the kitchen and onion and garlic and mashallah. And then they come to the masjid and they walk past. And instead of you smell, mashallah, you get hungry. Now, the, the, the clothing, the, the, the smell, it comes even in men and women. But we have to make sure that we are smelling, smell well, fresh, clean, not uh, so it doesn't mean, well, uh, we can't have perfume, so I have to smell stinky instead. No, no. There's neutral. You have to be neutral. The men, they can smell good. Because generally women won't chase after men. You know? It's usually the other way around, right? So w- men, they can wear perfume, mashallah, no problem. Women, they can wear perfume in the privacy of their home for their husbands. This is good. All right? طيب. So women, you might think, why would women come to the masjid perfumed? And, and, and Because unfortunately some masajid and some women, they come because it becomes like a hangout. And some masajid, they start to get a reputation that this is a place where young boys and young girls, it's a popular masjid and has a cool dude sheikh, like Sheikh Jalal, for example. You know, and a lot of young people like to come. And so there's going to be young boys there, so the young girls come. And there's young girls there, so the young boys come. And they start to see each other on the way in, on the way out, and in the car park, and so on. So they want to come, you know, ready. Ready to attract attention. All right? So this shouldn't be the case. We don't want to turn the masjid into something dishonorable. Okay? The masjid is higher than that, more honorable than that. We don't want to turn the masjid into what they call a pickup joint. Right? It doesn't like the masjid, yes, there is that. Yani, it is something good as well that uh, yani young men and women they get married from the masjid. It's something good, but not in an inappropriate way. 
So for example, the sisters may see a young sister and, and, and for example, a young man who wants to get married. So he brings his mom or brings his sister with him to the masjid and his mom or his sister, they see a young girl and they might ask, oh, what's your name or whatever. And, you know, uh, my, my son or my brother is looking to get married and like this, but not talking and chatting. And, you know, we have the masjid as a, as a fashion parade. You know, with the boys line up on one side and girls line up and they're looking at each other and they're picking each other. No. Speed dating? No. All right. So, yes, there is. The masjid is a place to get to know each other, but in an appropriate way. Not in a way that becomes sleazy and inappropriate and, 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 and disrespectful. And, and so the masjid just becomes a place to pick up. Not for, we forget what the masjid is for. For salah and learning and so on. Just becomes a place to come and find someone for marriage. No. Okay, so women especially coming to the masjid beautified and perfumed. This is an obvious evil witness during Ramadan and outside of Ramadan. The woman is, the woman is only coming to the, prayer, uh, to the prayer to worship Okay, so she's coming, uh, so a woman comes to the masjid to, uh, to, to pray and to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not to display her beauty and clothes. Perhaps men will look at her, so she will earn a sin and decrease her reward based on her actions. So we can't you know, purposely be a cause for people to commit sin by looking inappropriately at the opposite gender. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, أَيُّمَا مْرَأَةٍ أَصَابَتْ بَخُورًا any woman who has scented herself with bakhur, bakhur is incense. Okay? She goes and she purposely makes perfume on her clothes so that when she walks past, the, the men, especially the Isha pray. Because after Isha, you know, people might follow the smell and maybe, you know, entice them to immorality. The Prophet ﷺ, he said, whoever a woman, she's, if she scented herself with bakhur, let her not attend the Isha prayers with us. So if she, let's say, put incense of bakhur for her husband or something, then khalas, stay at home. Okay? Some women, for example, they might be going to a wedding and she has perfume or whatever, don't come to the masjid. On the way, I go to the masjid, pray Isha, and then go, no, because then... Khalas, pray in your home or pray in the venue or whatever it is. Don't come to the masjid if you're perfumed and scented and so on. The Prophet unfortunately, sometimes we have uh, يعني, uh, wedding ceremonies here in the masjid. And the women, Allah Musta'an, they come even to the women's section all dressed up and perfumed. They come to the masjid dressed up, not on the way. Allah Musta'an. So we should avoid this. And that's why we encourage people to have their weddings in the masjid. That way it should encourage people to be decent in their dress, especially the women. But unfortunately some people don't even respect the masjid and they come sometimes even without hijab. And this is not respectful. A Muslim is more worthy of respecting the masjid. Even if a woman, let's say, she, might Allah guide her, she doesn't wear hijab normally. But if she comes to the masjid, she should wear hijab. If even the non-Muslim... To respect the Muslims in their masjid, they wear hijab. How about the Muslim? She comes to the masjid, she doesn't wear hijab. Even if you don't wear hijab normally, at least show respect for the place and understand that you are, have shortcoming and you have a sin and maybe this will encourage you to wear hijab correctly and full time. 
طيب the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم he said لا تمنع إماء الله مساجد الله ولكن ليخرجنا وهن تفيلات do not prevent the female servants of Allah from going to the mosques of Allah but let them go out looking unadorned the meaning of unadorned is not beautified and not perfumed okay so uh, that is what the Sheikh mentioned in terms of common mistakes in regards to the Salah specifically then the next chapter is chapter 6 for those who may be following un, uh, with their books and it is mistakes related to Dua there's mistakes related to Dua we have a uh, Another 15 minutes until Salat al-Isha. So perhaps we'll take this chapter until Salat al-Isha. So the first mistake that is common that people do is raising their hands after obligatory prayers. Some people after every obligatory prayers, they raise their hands to make dua. After every, it becomes almost like it's part of the salah. It's like the salah is not finished until they make dua after the salah. If the person adheres to this practice, it is an innovation. The person does it every time, every time, every time, this is an innovation. Are we allowed to make dua after salah? Yes. But it shouldn't be something that becomes a sunnah. All right? Some people, it's like it's, a, it's part of the salah. Like, for example, some people after the salah, as soon as they finish the salah, shake hands with the person to the right, shake hands with the person to the left. They say, taqabbal Allah, taqabbal Allah. To say, taqabbal Allah, may Allah accept your prayer. Nice dua. Is it haram to say that? Not necessarily. But when you make it uh, like, like the guy, he's going to go crazy if you don't shake his hand. It's like he can't get up until he shakes his hand. If you don't shake his hand, maybe he shakes his own hand. Like some people, they're that bent on it. They make it as if it's like, he'll get very upset if you don't shake his hand. It's not part of the religion to do that. It's not sunnah to do that. You'll find the person, he goes and shakes and says, Allah, but he won't do tasbih after the salah. The tasbih and the athkar after the salah is sunnah. But saying taqabullah is not sunnah. It's a general good deed. You can do it. It's not, but when you make it part of, when you do it religiously, and it's not part of the religion, not sanctioned by the religion, then it becomes an innovation. Likewise, the dua. Yes, it is allowed to make dua, and there is a virtue in making dua, but it wasn't from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ to do it consistently. So what the Prophet ﷺ would do, sometimes we do sometimes. What he, does, what he did consistently, we do consistently. To make something that's allowed, we make it consistent and we make it as if it's sunnah and it's part of the salah. And some people, straight away, like I've led the salah in a certain masjid, for example. And as soon as I finish the salah, people put their hands up. You know? They're used to, the imam has to make dua. No, it's not. You don't have to. It's like some people, but I can't, like they won't get up until they make dua. No, it's not like that. To make it something, it's like part of salah. When you have that intention behind it, it becomes an innovation. Okay? So if a person adheres to that practice, does it consistently, and it feels like he has to do it, then this is an innovation. After, especially after the obligatory prayers. The sunnah is to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You find the person makes dua. Did you make a tasbih and dhikr and so on after salah? No, just dua. طيب, the, the dhikr and the tasbih after salah is sunnah. It's a consistent sunnah. Yeah, you do something that's allowed, you make it consistent. And something that's a consistent sunnah, you, you forget it altogether. So you're, and this is the problem with innovation. The innovation will take the place of the sunnah. Okay.
So we should get into the habit of doing the sunnah, not doing something that, yes, it's permissible, but it's not something that should be done consistently. So after obligatory prayers, the sunnah is to remember Allah and seek forgiveness, saying, uh, nothing has the right, la ilaha illallah, wahdahu la sharika lah, lahu al-mulk wa lahu al-hamd, wa huwa ala kulli shayin qadir, which means, nothing has the right to be worshipped except Allah, Allah is free from all imperfections, all praise belongs to Allah, Allah is the greatest, and so on. We say, subhanallah, walhamdulillah, wallahu akbar, and la ilaha illallah after the salah. And to supplicate individually without raising the hands. So it is sunnah and, and there is virtue in making dua after the salah. Okay? But it wasn't narrated that you have to raise your hands. Okay? Raising the hands is a general يعني, uh, habit of dua, but it doesn't mean with every dua you have to raise your hands, especially after the obligatory salah. This is what the Prophet ﷺ used to do. So Rasulullah ﷺ, he used to do the athkar. He used to say the words of remembrance and the tasabih and so on. And he used to make dua without raising his hands. So this is what the Prophet ﷺ used to do. He did not raise his hands in dua after the obligatory prayers. To do so is an opposition to the sunnah. And adhering to this practice is an innovation. To make it like something you adhere to is an innovation. Okay. Number two. Raising the hands during the obligatory prayers. This is like the person who raises his hands as he is raising for bowing, as though he is supplicating in qunut. So some people, when they say, You might have seen this. What do they do? They say, They raise their hands like they're making dua. So after rukur, They raise their hands like this. Like as if they're making dua. Right? So when we raise our hands after rukur, we raise our hands like we do in takbiratul ihram. So, so there's three main times we raise our hands in salah, in takbiratul ihram, before rukur, and as we raise from rukur. The same way, the palms facing the qiblas, yani flat. Not raising like dua. Okay, this is a mistake that we find a lot of people doing. This has not been narrated from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, and this was not done by the rightly guarded Khalifs, nor was it done by any of the companions. And any action not done by the Prophet ﷺ, pardon me, and his companions fall in, falls into his statement, Man Whoever introduces something into this affair of ours, then it is not from it, it is rejected. And he said, Whoever does an action, which is not from our affair, it is rejected. So you find some people after the Sami Allah it's like they, they make a dua. This is not from the actions of the Prophet. The third uh, point the Sheikh mentions about innovations or mistakes in dua is apathy as it relates to focus and an attentive heart during dua. So some people, when they're making dua, like you can see, they, they have their hands up, they're moving their mouth, but their brain is somewhere else. This is not the correct etiquette of dua. When we make dua, we have to be focused on what we are saying. Allah Ta'ala, He says, Invoke your Lord with humility and in secret. And you should really be serious in your dua. Because some people, dua has just become a habit. Especially those who do dua after salah. 
خلاص after salah and then they you, you find even he's looking somewhere he's looking at his friend and then he wants to go catch him before he leaves the masjid you know, it just becomes just a habit this is not how dua should be so dua should be something that you focus on and you make it serious and from your heart tadarru'an wa khufya should be something as well silent okay and Allah Ta'ala says, إِنَّهُمْ كَانُوا يُسَارِعُونَ فِي الْخَيْرَاتِ وَيَدْعُونَنَا رَغَبًا وَرَهَبًا وَكَانُوا لَنَا خَاشِعِينَ Verily, they used to hasten to do good deeds, and they used to call on us with hope and fear, and used to humble themselves before us. So Allah Ta'ala, here praises the believers, that when they make dua, they make dua with hope and fear. And they feel, you have to be, like have feeling in your dua. Not just, as we said, lip service. And habit, and you just say the same thing over and over, and just like you just get it over, over and done with. When supplicating, the person must have focus, humility, humbleness, and and an attentive heart. There are manners of du'a. The person who supplicates is diligent in receiving an answer to his du'a and having his request uh, fulfilled. So when you make du'a. With a with a with an attentive heart, with a serious heart, then then it's more hope that your du'a is going to be accepted. But when you make du'a and you're not thinking even about what you're saying, Allah doesn't respond to a heedless heart. Okay, as we'll see in the in the hadith, inshallah. So the person must make du'a. It, it is a must that the person is diligent in perfecting his du'a. Really, du'a, you should really make it from your heart, thinking about what you say, believing it, wanting it, having hope in Allah, having fear of Allah. When you're making du'a, being serious about what you're asking for. If you really want it, do you want it or not? If you want it, you ask Allah sincerely. But if, you, if you're asking Allah and you don't, you're not even focusing on what you're saying, it's like you're making fun. Allah, give me something... You know, then don't make dua if you don't really want it, right? So he said, it is a master. He's diligent in performing his dua and adorning it, so it is elevated to his Creator, such that he will answer it. Because you want to make dua, you want it answered, or you make dua and you don't care if it's not answered. No. The Prophet sallallahu he said, "Ud'u wa bil ijaba." Make dua, call upon Allah while you are certain of a response. You make dua, Allah, I know you're going to do this for me. Allah, fulfill this for me. Allah, grant this for me. Allah, forgive me. Allah, so on. And you, with faith that Allah will do it. And know that Allah will not answer a dua that comes from a negligent and heedless heart. Someone who's making dua, but he's not even thinking about what he's saying. He's not even caring about what he's saying. He doesn't care whether it gets answered or not. He's just saying. Not taking it seriously. Allah doesn't answer such a person. Okay? Another mistake that we find people doing in dua is that they lose hope in dua. They lose hope. I make dua, did it happen? What's the use? A lot of people will, Iyadu Billah, they do that. They say, I made dua and it didn't get answered, so I, no, what's the use of making dua? And this is very, very dangerous. And especially the days that we're living in now, we're seeing what's happening with our brothers and sisters in Gaza, and a lot of people, they're getting frustrated, and they're getting 
feeling hopeless. And they say, we're making dua, nothing's happening. You have to be patient. Losing hope in dua is a big mistake. So losing hope that dua will not be accepted and being hasty, waiting for a response. I made dua, it didn't happen. What do you think? It happens straight away? No, not necessarily. Sometimes Allah answers straight away. Sometimes Allah delays. Everything is with a wisdom from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So being hasty and losing hope, I make dua and nothing happens. Oh, I'm not even going to bother making dua. It's not going to happen. This is from the affairs that prevent dua from being accepted. The Prophet sallallahu he said, يُسْتَجَابُ لِأَحَدِكُمْ مَا لَمْ يَعْجَلْ يَقُولُ دَعُوتُ فَلَمْ يُسْتَجَبْ لِي The dua of one of you will be accepted as long as he is not hasty and doesn't say, I supplicated, but he wasn't answered. You want your dua answered? Make dua and hope that Allah will fulfill that dua sooner or later. Who's the one who Allah doesn't answer his dua? The one who's hasty. I made dua, it didn't get answered. Allah won't answer your dua then. Don't be hasty. You have to trust in Allah. You have to trust that Allah will grant you what you want in the proper time. And when it's good for you. I made dua, oh Allah, give me a million dollars. Did I get a million dollars? Not yet, maybe later. Tayyib, am I sad? I'm not sad. Why? Because maybe if I got that million dollars now, I would become corrupt. How many people, when they become rich, what happens to them? They get corrupted. Maybe Allah blessed me by not giving me that million dollars now. Maybe Allah left it for me when I need it the most. As a beautiful dua of the Prophet ﷺ, he said, He says, Oh Allah, make my best risk when I am old in age. Oh Allah, give me my most risk when I'm old in age. Maybe Allah will delay your whatever you ask for for later. When, when actually you will need it and it will be more beneficial for you. Right? So a person should never lose hope in dua. Make dua for whatever you want. Of the good of the dunya and good of the akhirah. Whether you get it, alhamdulillah. If you don't get it, still alhamdulillah, actually more alhamdulillah. Why? Because it's, it's good for you. What you think is good for you may not necessarily be good for you. Maybe it will be a deviation for you. But when you make dua, it's never lost. Allah will grant you goodness. Maybe what you ask for, maybe something different, but it's good for you. Maybe not now, maybe later when it's good for you. Dua is never useless. And wallahi, if we understood that, we would never stop making dua. And asking Allah for the goodness of the dunya and the akhirah. That's why the most common dua of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Rabbana atina fi dunya hasana, wa fi al-akhirati hasana, wa qina adha bannar. Most common dua of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He would always say it. And so as well, we should always say, Oh Allah, give me the good of this world. What good? You know what's good for me. Oh Allah, give me the good of this world. And the good of the next world, and save me from the hellfire. This summarizes the good of everything. So a person shouldn't be hasty and say, I made dua, but it didn't get answered. Don't be hasty. Allah will answer your dua. When will Allah not answer your dua? When you get hasty. We have previously mentioned that when the person, the person must be certain in his dua will be answered because he is supplicating to the most kind and most generous. Allah Ta'ala says, وَقَالَ رَبُّكُمْ دُعُونِي أَسْتَجِبْ لَكُمْ And your Lord said, invoke me and I will respond to you. Allah promised. Allah invited you, is calling you, make dua to me. I will answer you. 
Allah said he will answer you. Is Allah a liar? Allah is the truthful. But Allah doesn't put a condition how he will answer you. And that's not important. Allah will answer you, answer you in what's best for you. And that's better because what Allah knows is better than what I know. The person whose supplication is not accepted must fall into one of two categories. Okay, I made dua, Ya Rabb, grant me a million dollars. It didn't get granted. It's one of two things. One, there are things present preventing his supplication from being answered. Maybe there's something wrong that I have done that my dua wasn't answered. Maybe it's breaking the ties of kinship. Maybe it's wrongdoing. Maybe it's consuming that which is impermissible. In most cases, they, this will prevent dua from being answered. Okay? When we're doing something wrong. As the hadith mentioned, that a man was traveling, disheveled, ash'ath akbar, he's disheveled hair, his clothes are all dirty, he raises his hands to the sky, and he says, Ya Rab, Ya Rab. What does the hadith mention? Haram, his food is haram, haram, his drink is haram, haram, and his clothing is haram, haram, and is nourished by haram. So how can he be answered? We have to make sure that we're doing the right thing by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before our dua what our dua answered. So maybe because we're doing something wrong, that Allah is not answering our dua. That's number one. Number two, the answer to his dua will be delayed and stored for him, or an evil will be diverted from him equivalent to his supplication. Okay? So Allah may delay your dua, like I told you before. Maybe if I get my million dollars now, it's not good for me. But maybe Allah will give it for me later in my life, and that will be better for me. Or maybe Allah uh, will be delayed and stored for him. Or maybe an evil will be diverted from him equivalent to his supplication. Maybe Allah will save me from an accident. That if it was to happen, would cost me a million dollars. So isn't that a blessing? Maybe Allah will bless me with righteous children. Wallahi, if I paid a million dollars, I couldn't get a child like that. You never know the goodness that Allah will provide you other than what you ask for. And it will be better than what you ask for. Alright? So the Prophet ﷺ said, مَا مِنْ مُسْلِمٍ يَدْعُوا بِدَعْوَةٍ لَيْسَ فِيهَا إِثْمٌ وَلَا قَطِيعَةُ رَحِمٍ إِلَّا أَعْطَاهُ اللَّهُ بِهَا إِحْدَى ثَلَاثٍ إِمَّا أَنْ تُعَجَّلَ لَهُ دَعْوَتُهُ وَإِمَّا أَنْ يَدَّخِرُهَا لَهُ فِي الْآخِرَةِ وَإِمَّا أَنْ يَصْرِفَ عَنْهُ مِنَ السُّوءِ مِثْلَهَا قَالُوا إِذَا نَكْثُرْ قَالُوا وَاللَّهُ أَكْثَرْ the Prophet ﷺ, he said, There is no Muslim who calls upon his Lord with a dua in which there is no sin or severing of family ties. So never do you ever make a dua. As long as this dua is not a sin and as long as this dua doesn't cut the ties of kinship. Okay? You make a good dua. Any dua that you ever make as a Muslim, it will have one of three consequences. One of three things will happen. He will answer his dua quickly. Or he will store the reward of that dua for the hereafter. Or Allah will, will divert an equivalent evil away from him. Then the Sahaba, they said, Wallah, if you make dua, you never lose. In that case, we'll make a lot of dua. 
The Prophet said, and Allah's bounty is greater. It doesn't make dua. Allah will give you more. Don't think, well, you make dua. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Allah will give you more and more and more and more. Wallahi, if we knew dua, Wallahi, we would never stop making dua. Because there's only goodness from dua. As for what has been narrated, Tawassalu bijahi fa inna jahi indallahi azim is narrated that Seek dua through my status, through the status of the Prophet Sallallahu Oh Allah, I ask you by virtue of the Prophet. So this narration is a fabrication, it's not authentic. So we don't make dua to Allah through the Prophet. So this narration, seek to draw closer to Allah by virtue of my status, for my status with Allah is great. This is a fabricated narration is not authentically narrated from the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam okay and and ibn taymiyyah and shaykh al-albani said that this hadith has no basis and it's not even like daif it has no basis it's completely rejected the last point inshallah about dua is overstepping the bounds in dua al-i'tida' fi dua can someone like how can you make wrong dua Right? Overstepping the bounds of that, such as praying for something sinful or severing the ties of kinship. Right? Oh Allah, make me drink alcohol. <laughs> can't make a haram dua. We can't say, Oh Allah, never let me see my brother again. No, you can't make that dua to cut the ties of kinship or to make dua for haram. This is from the matters that prevent du'a from being accepted. The Prophet ﷺ, he said, There will be people who exceed in the bounds of du'a. Allah Ta'ala says, Invoke your Lord with humility and in secret. He does not like the transgressors. Exceeding the bounds in du'a includes praying for something sinful or praying for a calamity or severing the ties of kinship. You say, oh Allah, let a calamity before me. Some people, they say this when they are under stress or whatever. Oh, just let something, you know, destroy my life. I, oh, make me blind, you know. Especially the Arabs, they're very uh, creative when they come make du'a against themselves. Allah yasuf amri wa Allah ya'amini wa... They make dua against themselves and they make dua against their children. They make dua against... This is all haram. It's all not allowed. The Prophet ﷺ said, don't make dua against yourselves. Don't make dua against your children. Don't make dua against your property. Perhaps it will be a time in which Allah will actually answer it. Would you actually like that to happen? Nobody would. Right? So this is part of transgression in dua. We're severing the ties of kinship. The Prophet says, There is not a Muslim upon the earth who calls upon Allah with any supplication except that Allah grants it to him or he turns away from him like, like of it in evil. As long as he does not supplicate for something sinful or for severing the ties of kinship. Okay, so يعني, let us يعني, try to make as much dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the goodness of the dunya and the akhirah. Wallahu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam wa akhiru da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.